You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club, a morning reflection on the readings that we have on solomonscorner.com. Before we get started, please remember to leave a review of Solomon's Corner Podcast while you're here. This is definitely a segment that is put on by us. So we have a book club, for those that don't know, on the website. We are currently going through Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, and we've kind of slacked a little bit on getting the content out. Sorry, you know, we're a, two, we're a two-man show. One of us is a woman, so that should have, you know, we're kind of like a man and a half, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I'm just kidding. That's my wife laughing in the background, so for those of you who think that, you know, I crack these jokes and she doesn't know that they get on the internet, she knows, and she... Fully approves. So, I do nothing without her knowledge. She, I didn't approve. I would edit them out. That's right. So, in this first episode, what we're going to do is we're going to try and have morning, daily morning reflections from the readings in the book club. These are off the cuff. They are not necessarily 100% correct or 100% wrong. You can be the judge of that. It's to demonstrate to the listener what a intellectual reading should look like based on Sertiange's The Intellectual Life. So what you want to do is you want to read the section and you want to make sure that you have enough time at the end to write a short reflection. This should not be 20 minutes. This should not be uh, 45. I mean, if you have that time and, you know, you can, great. But there's a lot of reading to do in life, and there's and, and what you want to do is you want to try and, and glean this. And especially for the Christian thinker, um, scripture study and, and theology should be a part of your you know, regular thought life. So you don't want to spend too much time on a thinker like a Rent or a Plato or an Aristotle. They'll come up again and again and again throughout, but when you're initially making your first pass, you want to try and summarize the thoughts and what you think is important from that text. You're not necessarily concerned about getting quotes and, you know, dropping them into your journal and, and those kinds of things. So this one this one episode is going to be a little bit longer than, than normal because I'm doing this introductory piece. But, um, but the section that we are going to be covering today is section 31 on human action and the human condition. Uh, it's titled The Traditional Substitution of Making for Acting. So if that doesn't get you out of bed in the morning, I don't know it will. But just some initial thoughts on Hannah Arendt. I'm not really a big fan of her uh, approach. She's considered a phenomenologist. You can uh, read a, up on her. I recommend on the Stanford Encyclopedia um, of Philosophy. And... Um, that is a great resource, by the way, before you start diving into an author. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. You type in the name, get an overview of what their thought is. That's what I did because she wasn't making sense at the beginning. Um, and it's because she's, in my opinion, a phenomenologist, and phenomenologists don't make sense. They just deal with the observation of phenomena. They're not really trying to, in my opinion, make a systematic approach to things like, say, a Thomas Aquinas, who's going to go very systematically through an objection response, you know, clarification. They're just concerned with this is the way the world is and then kind of extrapolating off. The the best way to kind of think about them is in my is is that 
their ideas are kind of like islands that are loosely connected on the same plane or ocean, but they're not necessarily touching. And so you can kind of see off in the distance, you know, how the ideas are connected, but there's not a clear path uh, on how to get from point A to point B. That said, um, <clears throat> Hannah Arendt definitely makes some very thought-provoking conclusions, and that's what makes the book worth it. Um, but if you read the foreword or the preface, they even say, some people read her, and they're like, man, she's supportive of Marxism. And then other people read her, and they're like, she's supportive of capitalism. And it's like, well, she's not She's not an Alexis de Tocqueville, that's for darn sure, who was very clear, and you understood his thought. The tension that I think is in Hannah Arendt that allows for this kind of two groups fighting for her as kind of their representation of their idea is more from the fact that she's... Uh, ambiguous in in her reasoning but her conclusions are very concrete so um that's what makes the book very interesting so you know from the beginning you get this great little quote here um that you would most people would would agree with is let's see here if i can find it it is obvious short it is the obvious short-range advantages of tyranny the advantages of stability security, and productivity that one should beware, if only because they pave the way to an inevitable loss of power, even though the actual disaster may occur in a relatively distant future. Anybody who reads that is going to be like, wow, how well thought out. That is such a profound little nugget, and that's what makes Hannah Arendt a fun read, um, is that you kind of have this murkiness that you're kind of walking through with her, and you're kind of like, you know, this makes sense. It's a little bit like sitting in a in a sermon from a pastor who's going through exegetically and they know the Greek really, really, really well or the Hebrew really, really, really well, and you don't. And then they're, they're, they're going in a deep dive on how the language developed and you're like, okay, I'm tracking with you, I'm tracking with you. You lost me. You lost me. And then they come to the conclusion, and this is why your life matters. And you're like, yes, I see that. Yes, that makes a lot of sense but you lost me there for about 20 minutes. That's Hannah Arendt in a nutshell. She's like a, a pagan exegetical pastor. It's very, very, very interesting stuff. Um, but I would be remiss without mentioning one last fun little tidbit. She had an intense love affair with, and this seems to be philosophical tradition from what I'm gathering. She had an intense love affair with a Nazi named Martin Heidegger, uh, and this is throughout all the encyclopedia articles. It's almost like it's almost like the nerds who are writing these things are like, oh, and and don't forget to drop in the you know kind of nerd love affair that she had. And it's like right at the beginning. If you thought she was boring, she kind of had an interesting life. You're like, all right, well, whatever. Anyway, but she was a she was a a Jewish woman who uh, was in Germany and then had the affair, then left to America, and I believe she got divorced of her husband in America and then remarried. Anyway, so that's a little background on her. But for our section today, the, the real important highlight that I wanted to bring up is, number one, the uh, public and private distinction. This is probably the most important aspect of her thought, at least for anyone trying to apply it today. Um, one of the problems that we have in our society is that we don't People in general don't make the distinction between the public and the private. Um, for Arendt 
to be in the public is to be is to exist. Uh, this isn't necessarily like a metaphysical existence in this in the barest forms of reality, but from a political philosophy. Meaning, in order for you to have a, a, a political existence, you have to have a space in the public square. One of the the best examples of this is how the LGBT uh, lobby. Um, used to be kind of hidden in the shadows and they had these kind of secret gay bars and then they finally kind of broke out into the public and said we should have a political identity. This lifestyle of ours is who we are and we deserve political representation. In, in Arendt's view, that would mean that they, they went from non-existence in the um, private sphere to bringing their, their identity into the public space and then forcing the society to recognize its existence. Um, and this also can go the other direction, is what if we exclude people from the public affairs of life? That's not necessarily just meaning like I don't have a congressman or a senator up in, in, in Washington, D.C. It's are you permitted to have your identity publicly displayed and respected in the free market, in the political market, in all aspects of the city is what we would call it. And that's what is ultimately determines your political or public existence. There are some things, though, that need to remain in the private, which would be like uh, the father-mother relationship or, you know, the uh, marital relations that happen and produce children. You know, we don't put those on public display for people because those are supposed, their existence is as they are, their nature requires a private uh, existence. And so to bring, say, you know, marital intercourse out into the public and, you know, put it on display actually makes it something other than what it's meant to be. And so this is a really important distinction to understand that the private and the public have this interplay and there are certain things that are supposed to remain in the private and there are certain things that are supposed to remain in the public and that the existence of those things depends on the nature of what we're talking about and whether or not it's something that deserves existence in, or not deserves, but requires existence to flourish in the public space or the private space. So in this section, what we have is she's talking about Plato's utopia. And the big summary that I think is important here is the fact that she, she's going to go through and she's going to show you the language. She's going to show you how the language kind of developed and how the means justifies the ends. Uh, paradox was kind of put forward by Plato and Aristotle and how Plato's view of a utopia was kind of like a statue that his view of the um, idea, right, the, the form, and if, for those that don't know, Plato had this idea of, um, no pun intended, he had this idea of, um, you know, the form of something was in the piece of marble, and it was the sculptor who was going was gonna to Im imbue and bring out the form of the idea he had. So maybe it's a, it's a thinker statue or whatever. Before the thinker is created, uh, the marble slab is what needs to be chiseled, and the form is going to emerge. Hannah Arendt makes the case that this is also how Plato views the state. And we run into a, a real problem because societies aren't static like a statue. And earlier on, Arendt uses the statue as an example of the distinction between labor and work, 
work being something that is that man does that brings forth a creation that outlasts his own personal existence. It can last longer than him. And work, which is not something that lasts beyond man. So think about mowing a lawn or tilling a farm. Um, the main point is that, that I think is important to take from this, at least that I did, is that the city is not a is not a statue it's more like a farm plato analogized it but a farm is a better analogy because every single generation inherits a set of static elements which would be laws or policies or even like moral systems that are are long lasting in the in the analogy of a statue but the citizens are actually the city. And so they're more of like a crop that comes and goes. And you can have bad crops and you can have good crops. And the way that the farm is going to morph over time is going to be dependent on how good the crop is. You know, what are you going to do in order to make sure that a wheat crop can actually thrive and survive? Are you going to change the way that you plant it? Are you going to kind of re re uh, excavate the ground? Are you going to bring in some new uh fluids or, or chemicals or whatever, whatever you're going to do to try and make sure that that generation can live. The point is, is that the farm is never the same, uh, is not going to have the same crop as the season before. And this is important because obviously farms can go into drought and they can die. But you juxtapose this to Plato's idea of a utopia, meaning that if I'm, if I'm a good craftsman or statesman, I can you know, fashion the city in my, in, in what I believe the form is. I can look at, you know, the city as this malleable thing initially, but I can eventually achieve, you know, a perfect state. But this doesn't seem to line up well with our understanding of reality, that cities come and go, and statues oftentimes are what are left over from these cities. So Hannah Arendt makes a good observation that this seems to be just the way that Plato and Aristotle thought because of their understanding of, uh, or their aim of a city lasting beyond their existence. But what seems to be overlooked is that the city is actually the citizens. And so I think this lines up better with also a, a, a Christian interpretation of, uh, of, the, of the city. Because if you look at not just the Old Testament, where you literally have the same city, i.e. the same farm, but different Israelites coming and going. They are oftentimes radically different, but the identity of the city is the same. It's Israel. They're either worshiping God or they're worshiping Baal. And the season that they find themselves in is often dependent on who they are worshiping. But compare this to Christ. You know, the greatest mind to walk the earth. This isn't just me merely kind of inserting my, my religion into this discussion. Or the Apostle Paul. Um, if you consider these, these Christian followers, or Christian leader in Christ's case, uh, as for, for a moment as political thinkers, um, which they obviously were not concerned with the, the city and, and the state and things like that in the same degree as Plato was. But their analogies do hold that, you know, a lot of their things are not statues. 
they're living things. So they use analogies between shepherd and sheep, or farms and vines, or you know, grafting in, or you know, the harvest is is plenty, but the laborers are few. There is this constant agricultural theme throughout Scripture, which can also double as the can can have two meanings for itself. It can also obviously apply to the city, but it can also apply to the uh, the 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 city of God, right? We can we can see that this is Christ telling us this is this is how the world works as a Christian. You're you're gonna you know seeds are scattered and the devil comes and snatches them and the weeds crop up and all of this kind of stuff. But that's a far better analogy to uh, to the city because it explains why it is that a city can look like it's going to last forever and then suddenly wither and die. And it's because the city is not a statue, it's the people that make it up. And so when we are, you know, looking at our starting points for what the city is supposed to be, um, this this is important. And to in Hannah Arendt's thought, and, and as well as our own thought as citizens and Christians, if you're a Christian, or just as a citizen, is Hannah Arendt makes this, uh, just a little side note so that we kind of understand where I'm going here. Hannah Arendt makes this statement about um, the paradox of a means justifies the ends. She says, For to make a statement about ends that do not justify all means is to speak in paradoxes, the definition of an end being precisely the justification of the means. And paradoxes always indicate perplexities. They do not solve them and hence are never convincing. As long as we believe that we deal with ends and means in the political realm, we shall not be able to prevent anybody's using all means to pursue recognized ends. And obviously, you can't get rid of the means versus ends paradigm. And when we say ends, we just mean your goal, your target. What what kind of city are you trying to create and what are you going to use to create it? Are you going to use the communist boot of totalitarianism? Are you going to use a fascistic, you know, relationship that suppresses all freedom? What are you going to use? And for because and you can't get rid of the means justifies the ends paradox because it's contradictory to do so. If you say my goal is to eliminate the means justifies the goal uh, framework, well, you're actually using that framework to try and destroy it. And so, you know, your goal can't be to eliminate goals and then say, there are no goals. Um, You're obviously going to use a means to try and attain that goal. So this is something that's baked into reality. It's not just merely a political theory. I think she kind of, whether she meant to or not, she kind of implies that she thinks that maybe we can get rid of it because she says, you know, as long as we believe this, it's like, well, you can't not believe it. It's just the way the world works. You have a goal and you're going to take some specified actions towards that goal. And you might take the wrong actions to get the goal. And you might take the right actions and not do it right, do it well enough to get the goal. This is just the way that society is is organized and human experience is, is, is experienced. So back to the idea of, of an analogy, this means, okay, well, what ends are we going to have in the, in the farm analogy? What are the ends that we're aiming at? Well, it can't just merely be, you know, a great city. I guess it could be in some sense. But the immediate goal to attain that, and again, this is a little more in-depth than we will go in the mornings, 
But Aristotle, for example, uh, well, I think I was exposed to this first in Thomas Aquinas, had the idea of proximate ends. So you have an ultimate end for Christians. Usually this is God or monotheistic groups. This is God. Um, and then you have a proximate end. It's like, okay, well, what am I going to do to love God? I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's my end. What are the means to attain that? Well, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And that means that there is a secondary goal or a proximate goal that is going to help you attain your ultimate goal. And so the same thing applies here is that we have these these proximate ends. Okay, well, we want a good city. Okay, well, what's the proximate end to, that we need to strive for in order to have a good city or a good farm? Well, clearly, it's a, to further the analogy, it's a good crop. You have to have a good crop of citizens that are going to come in and they're going to thrive and they're going to flourish and it's going to they're going to be well watered to use biblical analogies or just farming analogies they're going to actually have souls that they have nurtured that produces a strong and hardy crop that can weather storms that can weather droughts these kinds of things but if you don't have that if the farmers so to speak the previous generation got lazy that they didn't you know they did not necessarily till the ground the way they should. Or maybe they, they they decided to plant something they shouldn't have planted. Whatever you want to say. This analogy is getting a little, little crazy. I don't want to go too far down it. But I think you guys get the idea. The point is, is that a society in Hannah Arendt's thought, I think she's right that Plato and had this idea of society as more of like a statue. Um but for us today, it's better to recognize it's more like a farm. Our own end must be God, and the means informed are not just his are not his divine character, because we can't be God. But the nature he intended for us to strive towards, what does it mean to be human? This is what we have to be wrestling with and and fighting to understand because that's what is ultimately the uh that ultimately determines what we need in order to uh become better human beings and in doing that becoming better citizens and in becoming a better human being we don't just become a better citizen it's that we actually become better human beings, which is what God made us to be, and we actually end up striving not just for the end of the city, but for our our divine end, which is God. And there's one more analogy that comes into this, is that in order to become a good human, suffering seems to be part of the experience. It's not that suffering is meaningless. It's not that suffering is solely individual or solely a, a um, community thing. Communities can suffer and individuals can suffer. All individual suffering means a community is suffering. We obviously understand that distinction. But it seems to be the case that in Scripture and in modern uh, atrocities and the survivors that came out of those, that suffering, paradoxically, in our own lives is not the chisel to make a, a good statue or a good city but it's a plow. God is working in our own, on our own dry and hard souls is also tilling the ground for the city. So we must recognize the twofold nature of our suffering and striving is for both us 
and the city. We are the seeds that are going to go into the ground that God has tilled. And he is going to work that ground, and he is going to plow that ground, and we are going to either put our roots deep, or we're going to put them shallow, and the next crop is going to be the one that's going to be strong. And so this kind of gets at this quote that I've mentioned before, the wise plant seeds under whose shade they know they shall never sit. And so the farm, I think, is a better analogy for our city than for the city. And we are the seeds that show forth the fruit and the harvest for the season that God has planted us in. And the harvest we are expected to yield is on us in that season. So those are my thoughts on Hannah Arendt, The Human Condition on Action. And uh, we'll see you again tomorrow morning. Thanks again. And I'm Daniel Roberts. Keep thinking.